Look around, what do you see? Cars, lots of them. And guess what? They're probably on Auto Trader. Whether you're into timeless classics or the latest trends, did somebody say solar-powered, eco-friendly, vegan, leather-wrapped, aromatherapy-scented, disco ball-equipped, self-driving car? If you see it on the road, you can likely find it on Auto Trader. Big cars, small cars, blue cars, new cars, used cars, electric cars, and one day, maybe even flying cars. With millions of options to choose from, buying a car becomes a whole lot easier. See it. Find it. Auto Trader. It's been almost 3,000 years, and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh, and there in the past or the future, I can't tell, is Chuck, and Jerry's here hanging out in the ether, and that makes this stuff you should know. Hanging out in the ether. Mm-hmm. She's ethereal. She's actually on ether, too, to really complete the whole circle. <laughs> oh, boy. I wish I was. <laughs> so, um, Chuck, surely you've heard of attachment theory before. It's so fully ingrained into pop culture that I would be really surprised if there are many of our listeners out there who aren't at least passingly familiar with it. Yeah, I had heard of it, and it's, um, you know, I think this is a very instructive episode for brand new parents, mm-hmm. uh, because even if you think you kind of know something about it, I, I learned a lot. Uh, it's too late now, because, you know, my daughter's <laughs> seven and a half, right. so we already screwed up. Right. <laughs> But if you're just starting out with a baby, like, start early because whatever you do makes a big impact on their adult life even. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that makes this so interesting is, like, you've got a really narrow window to not screw up your kid. And yeah. it's it's you. It's on you. Like, you, the primary caregiver, are responsible for your kid or not. So, says attachment theory. A lot of people question that. A lot of people say uh, humans are way too complex. There's way too many genetic and environmental and social forces working on the individual to shape them. But uh, there there does seem to be, like, a, a lot of validity to attachment theory, even if it isn't, like, the thing that forms our personality. Yeah, and I think it's one of those cool things that, like, uh, and, you know, we're going to talk about the history of it, but it seems like, kind of almost right away when we started figuring out that there was attachment, Mm -hmm. there were some people, even though it's gotten way more popular over the years to sort of look into this stuff, some people kind of really early on were like, all right, well, why? Like, let's try and figure this thing out. Yeah, because attachment, um, we should define it. It's basically a a bond, uh, an affinity for uh, that an infant has for their caregiver and vice versa, typically. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is seems to be universal, that bond, that attachment uh, between baby and caregiver. 
uh, around the world. It just seems to be a human thing. Uh, it also seems to show up in the the animal kingdom, especially among other ma- uh, mammals and primates. Yeah. Um, it, it is a thing. And like you said, people are like, but why? And they started asking why after Darwin came along. So the framework that everybody was looking at this through was evolution, natural selection. And the first kind of dominant explanation for the whole thing, which we'll get into a little more later, was behaviorism. And the upshot of behaviorism as it, as it applies to um, that bond that forms between baby and caregiver um, is that the baby wants to be fed and the caregiver feeds the baby. Ergo, the baby feels good about the caregiver. Yeah. And who cares about your emotions? <laughs> yeah. We can't study those anyway is, was kind of the prevailing theory. Yeah, that's exactly right. But then up, uh, along comes a guy and a lady and another guy uh, riding in on their ponies. Peter, Paul, and Mary? <laughs> it was, <laughs> strangely enough. Uh, no, it was a guy named John Bowlby. Uh, there was a, a woman named Mary Ainsworth. And then there was another guy uh, named William Blatz who will show up later. And, like, we'll talk about them a little more in a second. But Bowlby basically was among a, a small handful of people who said, hey, that whole behaviorist um, explanation doesn't hold up because you can feed a baby and the baby will still be crying. The baby will still want the the caregiver. Um, And sometimes a caregiver can sue the baby without any food. So I don't think it's just food that they're after. I think it's something more um, intangible, but just as important as food. Yeah. Like if your baby's scared, it's, yeah, it's not all just about that you know, that milk that you're getting. And, you know, that stuff's important. Like we talked about in the breastfeeding episode, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we covered, you know, those kinds of bonds and attachments that can happen from mother to to baby. Uh, but we also talked about the fact that that's not, you know, the end-all be-all necessarily. Right. No, yeah. Definitely milk is important. Food is important. But that's well, not— that breastfeeding bond. <laughs> sure. Oh, oh, the bond. Sure, I got yeah. you. Yeah. But the, the so yeah that bond in and of itself is what Bowlby and attachment theory says is the important part of the bond. It's the bond. It bond the bond isn't like some um, you know byproduct of that need for food and satisfying of the need for food. It is the thing that the kid wants and that the caregiver gives to the kid. A bond, a connection, a social connection with another human being that that cares for that little little baby. Um, And that's, it it almost sounds like on the surface, like, wait, what's the big difference? The difference is, is the purpose of the bond is emotional. And behaviorism says the purpose of the bond is strictly to manipulate the person to get food, right? So there is an enormous amount of difference. And they came up at around the same time. And uh, it turned out that attachment theory basically completely supplanted behaviorism, as we'll see. Yeah, I think what's interesting is that, uh, at least in our case, like right when my daughter was born, she comes out and they're like, get in there in that other room and take your shirt off, mm-hmm. <laughs> like mom and dad, and like start putting that skin on skin. They call it skin on skin. Yeah. Uh, and that skin on skin contact, they say, is just, you know, do it as much as you can, as often as you can uh, mm-hmm. from from the get-go. Uh, yeah. Which I guess is part of attachment theory, even though that's a physical bond. I, I I don't know. I, I really don't know. It didn't come up, so I. It's got to have something to do with it, but I I didn't see anything like where that skin on skin contact is an important part of attachment. 
Yeah, I'm I'm kind of curious. I meant to look into that, but it's one thing that this it's a big deal now. You know, whereas in the old days they were like, you know, dads down the street, you know, in a bar, and eventually right. you'll meet your child. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And that also explains, I realize now, why you started wearing wide mesh crop top right. t-shirts all the time. <laughs> Just to make that skin-on-skin contact easier. Skin to win is our motto. So the upshot of attachment theory is this, everybody, that you're a primary caregiver. And if you make yourself available, if you're responsive to an infant's needs uh, to be soothed when they're scared, to be fed when they're hungry, to be like cuddled, give them that skin-on-skin contact, then the infant learns that they can depend on that. And that gives them a sense of security that in a few years they can use to go explore the rest of the world knowing they have a safe home base. That's attachment theory, and that's not it. If you don't do that exactly, then it has all sorts of other effects that make the kid not secure from that that time on. Yeah, and, you know, a lot of this may seem like uh, no-duh type of stuff now because we're way more um, just sort of in tune with that kind of thing now and a little more touchy-feely now. So it seems very obvious, I think, these days. But as you'll see, and a lot of this has to do with how you react – um, like when the child may be upset, it mm-hmm. it wasn't always that way. I mean, we'll you know we'll touch on it later. But there, were, up until semi recently, there were times where it was like, no, if your child's upset, you know, uh, try and get them to not be upset in any way you can. And maybe right. that's punishment. Maybe you ignore it, <laughs> and that was sort of the way. And it's just. It's crazy to think about such an obvious thing as like, no, you should provide comfort to an upset kid uh, first and foremost and kind of work out from there, uh, you know, because I'm not saying there's no like behavioral things you need to address. But uh, it's just really interesting that it took that long to arrive what to me, what to me is like a really kind of obvious thing. Yeah, I wonder, though, if this is where we finally progress to or if behaviorism was a diversion from stuff we've been doing before, which probably bore a strong resemblance to attachment theory. Could go either way. I never thought about that. You know? Yeah, like Tuk-Tuk may have been a better parent than dad in the 1940s. Yeah, and Bob Dobbs or something. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So um, let's talk about the people who who literally changed the world because you really put your finger on something, something sticky and smelly. When you said that um, it it just seems like no duh now, like that is how thoroughly it has completely permeated Mm -hmm. Western society. Yeah. Um, And and you can point to John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth as two people who changed the world by by getting attachment theory across and showing, like, this actually has real legs. Yeah. So, Bowlby was a Brit. Uh, he was a psychiatrist, and he was raised, He, you know, it's pretty clear that he probably had um, some kind of money growing up because he was mm-hmm. raised by uh, a host of nannies uh, in England. And uh, it seems like when he got older, he was very much into exploring what, that meant to him because he, I guess, had a memory uh, or at least maybe uncovered some trauma from when he had his main nanny 
uh, split for another job when he was really young. Yeah. And when you're a little kid, like if if that's your scene growing up, that main nanny, that's like your caregiver. And so it would, I would guess, be akin to like mom leaving or something like that. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, and this was in like the, what, like 1930s. So he started exploring that, which was a very, I think, kind of forward introspective kind of thing to be thinking about back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't seem like the kind of thing that was uh, innate back then, but he started thinking about his own life, and that really informed his his research or his interest in researching it. Yeah, and it makes you wonder if that nanny hadn't left and inspired him to kind yeah. of look into the damage that it did. Totally. I mean, would we even have attachment theory? It's a it's a big question. Or Mary Ainsworth may have just had a tougher time because they really, it, it seems, worked great in tandem together. Right. So, um, Bowlby, uh, he started investigating juvenile delinquents. Um, that was where he started to to kind of look for, like, if you want to prove a point, go find the extremes and then investigate that. And mm-hmm. it's the easiest way to uncover the, the machinations of things. So, he started looking at juvenile delinquents and basically was like, it's the kid's home life that that makes them a delinquent. It's nothing else. Like, you can take poverty away. uh, You can take, um, you know, rule out all these other factors. And if the home life is stable and supportive, the kid's probably not going to be a juvenile delinquent. If it's not, there's a chance the kid will be a juvenile delinquent. So, out of the gate, he's already contributing to society through his research and his theories. Yeah, Um, and I thought it was interesting in that he wasn't necessarily just saying, like, good parent, bad parent. He worked at the London Child Guidance Clinic, Mm -hmm. and he was looking and, in fact, wrote a letter to the British Medical Journal talking about just family separations because of jobs Mm -hmm. uh, and chiefly World War II. Uh, World War II comes along right when he's sort of getting into this, and families all of a sudden are split up, and he hit on a key thing, which is like, hey, that's, that's no good to have a parent taken away from a child at an early age and I don't think he was saying, like, you know, we shouldn't send soldiers to war because uh, their kids are going to be delinquents later. But he was saying this might happen as a result of that. Yeah, and even more than just, you know, fathers going off to war. Like, like children were removed from their parents to get them to safer places out in the countryside. Yeah. Um, if you've ever seen The Lady in Black 2, the horror movie, that's kind of the <laughs> premise of it. I have it. I'm sure These, you have. The, all, yeah, a few times. All these little kids are, like, <laughs> removed from London where it's very dangerous, but their parents need to stay behind uh, and contribute to the to the war effort working in the factories. And, yeah, so, yeah, of course it's going to have that effect. So he's telling everybody this, like, this might not be the best idea, even though the intentions are great. Sorry, and then he moves into the juvenile delinquents. He, uh, he had a paper called 44 Juvenile Thieves, Their Character and Home Life. Yeah. And that's when he was like, it's the home life that's that's the problem. Yeah, he took kind of a big swing here because he went all, you know, all the way out on a limb to say, like, hey, your kid may be like a criminal later in life. Uh, and they may be using, you know, like stealing material things, maybe a, a literal substitute or I guess not a literal substitute. There I go. A figurative <laughs> substitute for the fact that they didn't get the love they needed as a kid. Uh, and I think, you know, he, I don't think he talked about it in this paper, but of course, later that could be drug addiction or any sort of uh, bad road you go down. Yeah. And so he followed that up. 
he, the the World Health Organization, right when the UN starts to be formed, basically, hired him in 1950 to work on the mental health of homeless children. Amazing. It is amazing. This guy was a pretty amazing dude just based on his yeah. research, right? Yeah, just as so, they were doing this back then, you know. Right, right. It, especially when the dominant view was, no, these are all little yeah. robots. This stuff doesn't matter at all. And he's saying, no, this actually matters a lot. And he came out with a book called Child Care and the Growth of Love. <laughs> it was basically based—I know, it's a great title. I love it. But it was based on the work and the research that he did for the World Health Organization. But he—, he very wisely, I get the impression, wrote it for a popular audience. Yeah. And that helped the whole theory gain traction. And the theory was these juvenile delinquents I've been investigating um, that had a bad home life. Well, I went and figured out where the whole thing starts, and it starts really early on in infancy. And that it's all about nurturing the child Mm -hmm. that leads to proper development. And that if you don't nurture the child properly, they're going to be psychologically damaged humans for the rest of their lives. So let's start figuring out how to nurture them properly. Yeah, and I think you kind of hit on it. The key here was it wasn't a scientific paper. This was like, hey, people in the public sphere, let's read this book. Yep. Uh, I think that's a good time for a break. I feel like we could just keep going and just say, forget the ads. Sure. Let's make it a Christmas special. (laughs) Uh, But maybe we should take a break and then introduce uh, Mary Ainsworth in earnest after that, huh? Agreed. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiment and Billy made raisins dance. so cool, Billy. He did. (laughs) Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me. (laughs) Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to catch you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby Award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, 
and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Okay, Chuck, so we're back, and it's high time that Mary Ainsworth wrote in on her Palomino. And then along came Mary. <laughs> That's a great, great reference there. Thank you. Um, and we should say Ed helped us out with this one, and he uh, made a little aside somewhere in this article. I can't remember quite where, but he wanted to point out that he started looking into Mary Ainsworth mm-hmm. and expected to find that she was just kind of like the woman working behind the scenes who never really got credit until long after her death. Yeah. And he said he was very pleasantly surprised to find that, nope, she was viewed as a collaborator of Bowlby's, that they came up with this together, and she was very much lauded within her lifetime. Like yeah. she was, she was seen and respected for her work uh, at a, like during the 50s, basically. So uh, that's a big deal. I think it's worth mentioning uh, off the bat. Absolutely, because I feel like we've come up with so many of these stories through the years in research terms where, like, the man stamps his name on it, and it's like, thanks. Thanks for the help, Mary. Exactly. Now go get me some coffee. Yeah, exactly. No, that isn't what happened. So Mary Ainsworth moves to London. I don't know if she did it to specifically work with Bowlby or not, but she ended up working with him pretty quickly. And she brought with her uh, a theory that had been worked out by someone else she'd worked with. I think he was a bit of a mentor to her. His Mm -hmm. name was William E. Blatz. And Blatz came up with something called security theory, which basically says that if uh, if a kid has security early in life that they can trust in their, their caregiver, then they have a foundation for exploration later on in life. And uh, as Ed puts it, it seems like it was a bit of a beta version yeah. of attachment theory. It's kind of like attachment theory without the explanation of why or how. Yeah, and it turns out that Mary Ainsworth was really good at um, helping to find out the why because mm-hmm. she knew, like, hey, we can sit around and have high tea and theorize all day over here in England. Yeah. And she said, it's very nice. I enjoy the high tea. It's one of the reasons I moved. <laughs> Those cucumber sandwiches are delish. Yeah, fingy sandwiches are lovely. <laughs> uh, but, like, we need to do, like, we need to— try and prove this stuff and do experimentation. And one of the experiments, uh, they ended up working together at Johns Hopkins University, and she developed a very famous experiment called uh, The Strange Situation, capital S, capital S. And it sounds kind of mean, but it it's not as mean as it got, and you'll find out, you know, later on that oh, yeah. uh, this other character comes in that was kind of a human monster with his experiments. But mm-hmm. the strange situation was basically a situation where you had a, a kid and their caregiver in a room for 21 minutes, 
And over those 21 minutes, there would be a series of comings and goings of the caregiver and a stranger. So like, and there was some overlap here and there. So the, the caregiver would be there and then a stranger would enter. And then every time one of them would leave, that was labeled as a conspicuous exit, whatever that mm-hmm. means. Bye, um, I'm leaving. I guess so. Uh, but, and it wasn't like the stranger would come in and just sit there with crossed arms. Like they, uh, it says that the str- uh, stranger would be like geared toward the child's mm-hmm. uh, activities or whatever. So, uh, I, I would like to see it in action to see what they actually did, but um, it was just a series of comings and goings with the goal to basically kind of see what, you know, how the child reacts and what to their mind might look feel like a crisis right. and how strongly they respond to uh, everybody, to the caregiver leaving, to the stranger coming in, to perhaps bonding some with the stranger or not. Uh, then the stranger leaving, and then if you're mad when the caregiver comes back because they left, or if you were just super relieved. So there's like all kinds of things you can unpack with the capital S, capital S strange situation. Right. But w- what she found is that there's really just a few buckets that you can put these responses in, which is really something. That means you're on to something when you're like, yeah. wow, this is crazy. These kids are acting or responding within one of three or four ways. And um, even more important, or just as important, I should say, she also did some uh, field work in Uganda. Yeah. Um, studying uh, like uh, infant caregiver bonding and yeah. um, found that like these kids respond in the same way as American kids do. Um, in these same four buckets. So she was definitely on to something for sure. Yeah, and that kind of work became super important as far as, uh, you know, because it wasn't just like, let's just uh, explore the, what's happening with these American babies. Like mm-hmm. they wanted to find out if it was cross-cultural and then eventually drilling down even more to like socioeconomic and stuff like that. So all right. just super valuable stuff. For sure. So um, it's like you said, Bowlby came up with the theories and Ainsworth figured out how to how to explain why those theories did a pretty good job of explaining uh, bonding and attachment. Right. Yeah. Um, So just to kind of like get a little further into behaviorism and what they were up against by by coming up with this completely radical new idea of what makes a good human being. Um, they were up against behaviorism, and one of the most famous behaviorists uh, was B.F. Skinner. Oh, yeah. And what B.F. Skinner was working on was operant conditioning, which is you take a behavior and you pair it with a consequence. It can be a reward. It can be a punishment. Mm -hmm. But depending on whether you want to encourage that behavior or discourage that behavior, you punish it or you reward it, right? Yeah. And that means that that behavior then is learned. That's the basis of behavioralism, that it's a, that these behaviors are learned traits. Uh, and that's not at all what Bowlby and Ainsworth were, were finding. They, they came to realize or believe that, um, that bonding and attachment was an innate trait, not a learned trait. Right. So, like, if you have affection towards someone, it's not there because you need it, but mm-hmm. it is just a, a stimulus, basically, to further the caregiving. That's the behaviorist viewpoint. Yeah. And, you know, Skinner in a Skinner box, which we've, I feel like we've talked to that, about that a bunch of times. Mm-hmm, for sure. But the, the, so, like, these guys were saying, like, they, they turned this behaviorist um, explanation for bonding um, 
into like child rearing practices and like wrote books and basically said like if your baby's crying and you pick that baby up and soothe it you have just reinforced the crying behavior and they're going to cry for the rest of their uh, life so you should probably never approach a crying baby just ignore them basically yeah it, yeah it, they almost treated it as if you were like uh that that was equivalent to a child having a tantrum later Mm-hmm. You know, and this is yeah. just, it's not the same thing. There is a behaviorist named John B. Watson. I think we've spoken about him before, too. His name is very familiar, but he wrote a parenting book, and um, a couple of excerpts from it are as follows He said that you should never hug or kiss your kid mm-hmm. or let them sit on your lap. <laughs> Get this you should shake hands with them in the morning. Well, I agree with that part. <laughs> if they've if they've done an extraordinary good job at uh-huh. some difficult task, then maybe you can give them a pat on the head. Mm-hmm. And then if you must, must, then you can kiss them once on the forehead when they say goodnight. This was like the 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 interaction that they said if you do this with your kid, you're going to produce a good kid, not a um a, a, a social deviant monster. Who uh, and frankly, this fully explains the boomer generation because this is about the time that these kids were being born and raised. Yeah, when was his? Uh, when was Watson around? The fifties. This okay. is the fifties. Yeah, I'd be curious to find out what his uh, if he had children, how that went. They're still like trembling. Yeah. I'm guessing. <laughs> they just want that pat on the head when they meet somebody. But, I mean, imagine that people were like, yeah, that's a great idea. I can shake hands with my kid in the morning, and they're going to turn out to be aces. They're going to be the toast when they get older. Yeah, no good. Uh, yeah, nice uh, nice ref. <laughs> <laughs> that almost slipped by me. Um, should we talk about the three sort of uh, buckets, which basically are the three attachment styles? I think we should. All right. Well, the first one is uh, – well, the, the, it turned out that there were four, but um, – Thankfully, the fourth is is a very small percentage of infants uh, are exposed to this kind of attachment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the first is secure, and that means you know you're you're doing great as a parent. That means you're <laughs> re- nurturing and you respond. And again, a lot of this is what to do when your kid is upset. You're mm-hmm. responding with um, support and by calming them and by nurturing them, rather than you know doing uh, the Watson method. And again, in turn, I know it sounds like we're beating a dead horse, but that will make the child feel secure. They're going to feel supported. Uh, they're going to feel like they're able to express negative emotions. And mm-hmm. uh, I think that is a, a semi-modern thing is is like negative feelings are okay. Like you're not supposed to get your child to quit crying. You're supposed to right. say, cry it out, feel those feelings, and let's mm-hmm. like talk about them. Um, and, and then shake hands afterwards. <laughs> shake hands. Okay. Well done. Right. Here's a cucumber sandwich. Uh, and this is called an organized, and they're sort of uh, further um, described as organized or disorganized. This one is organized, and I think, what, 65 to 70%, which is a pretty good number of infants apparently are are brought up and nurtured in this way. Right. And also to circle it back, Mary Ainsworth is the one who's like, okay, there's a lot of kids, 65, 70% of kids who respond in this way, Mm -hmm. right? And what she's finding is that in that strange situation test, the secure children will be distressed when their parent leaves. 
and then will be relieved when the parent comes back. Mm-hmm. They will go to the parent for comfort, yeah. and then the parent finds it very easy to calm the child down, comfort them, and then the child goes back to playing with the toys like nothing ever happened. It all just right. rolled off their back. That that is the that forms that secure attachment, right? Yeah. Um, and like you said, it's organized because the kid knows that they can go to the parent, the parent's going to reassure them, and then it's going to be all good. Yeah, there's like a structure there that even an infant can understand. It's so basic. Exactly. Um, the next one that she found, I think, covers about 20 to 25% of infants. Ugh. It's avoidant. Yeah. And this one is where the caregiver just doesn't really give the kid what they need. Mm-hmm. And we're talking infants here, yeah. right? Does it like the, the, the infant is in distress and the caregiver might just like ignore them. They might get annoyed with them. They might kind of mock the kid's distress and like little baby, oh, what's wrong, little baby? Are you upset kind of thing? Yeah. Which, I mean, I, I can't imagine how many times I've heard that in my life, like in movies or on TV and probably even in real life. And when you step back and realize that you're mocking an infant and you're screwing them up as you do it, well, here's how you screw them up, right? And um, in the actual strange situation, um, the kid is totally normal. You, you can't really distinguish them from the secure kids mm-hmm. until the caregiver leaves. And the secure kids, remember, they became distressed. The uh, avoidant kids, they're actually like, I'm, I'm all good. I'm just going to keep playing with the, these Lincoln logs, right? Although I think it's a little old for infants, but regardless. <laughs> and then when the caregiver comes back, they either ignore the caregiver or may actually like go away from the caregiver because what they've learned is that their emotions upset the caregiver yeah. so they have to manage their own emotions and they have to hide them and that is what the inf- you learn as an infant yeah. if you have an avoidant attachment yeah like this this behavior drives my caregiver away from me mm-hmm. so i have to go into my room to be upset or something uh yep. it's sort of just occurring to me reading all this that how much the story of Popeye the Sailor Man <laughs> comes what? into play. Popeye, how? when he was an infant and Pappy wasn't around, mm-hmm. uh, there was a lot of like, they had a lot of unpacking to do. He and Pappy. I, I don't remember that at I mean, all. Yeah, I like, just pa- remember him beating people up. Yeah, Pappy was Popeye's dad. Sure. And he didn't get the love he needed when he was an infant. Uh, and so that's probably why he was violent <laughs> huh. later in life. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Although, if he had been disorganized, it would have made more sense that he was violent. Uh, was Popeye organized? I I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I would say he's probably disorganized, had a disorganized attachment, because that's the one that's associated with violence. Yeah, I think Pappy was cold. So if Pappy was cold, he probably would have developed avoidance, right? Yeah. If Pappy was um, uh, inconsistent, where Pappy was sometimes like, oh, it's okay, you know, and reassured little infant Popeye, and then other times ignored infant Popeye, infant Popeye would learn that there was no real way to depend on uh, Pappy and no real way to predict when Pappy was going to respond to Popeye's needs, right? Yeah, this inconsistency, this is called the resistant bucket. Mm-hmm. It almost seems that it does as much damage as uh, as the other one. It, like, yeah, I mean, it depends like, on your definition, sure. Yeah, I mean, there, I mean, this is something I've learned as a parent that, like, 
structure, like kids really, really count on that, even though they Mm -hmm. don't know that they count on that Mm -hmm. because they don't understand it at that point. But like disrupting a schedule and disrupting a structure uh, is very – like it shouldn't be taken lightly as a parent, even small things. And Emily and I find ourselves all the time still just being like, oh, God, you know, we didn't really think about like – um, coming back from a vacation or or just launching back into school. Like we're parents, we can, or adults, we can kind of zig and zag with life, but you can't always count on a kid to be able to do that. Uh, and I think that's sort of, um, in a way, that, that sort of inconsistency playing out, you know, as a kid gets older. Right. Yeah, no, totally. And like in the strange situation um, experiment, these kids were distressed even before the parent left. Yeah. They were distressed while the parent was gone. And then when the parent came back, they might be angry to the parent. They might be um, clingy to the parent. Right. Uh, and the, I saw this explained as these kids develop a preoccupation with their attachment. They're not sure when their their caretaker is going to respond to them, so they can't focus on anything else but whether or not their caretaker is going to respond to them. Yeah. And they, by being clingy, they're like trying to force the caregiver to respond. They may cry louder than other kids because they're trying to force the caregiver to respond. And that's the ambivalent or resistant uh, attachment style. And yeah, it is it is a sad way to screw up a kid, it seems like. Yeah, uh, the final one, which is the smallest bucket, is uh, the only one that's labeled as disorganized. Uh, Even though resistant is pretty chaotic, it's still organized, like you said. Mm -hmm. Uh, But this is, and a lot of times they point out that uh, the caregiver in the disorganized case is um, may have a trauma that they suffered. This is sort of like that cycle that repeats itself. Or they may have like some mental health issue or something Mm -hmm. and are not – maybe not able to like concentrate on the needs of the kids. So, uh, or at least consistently. So it's also inconsistent, uh, just like resistant is, but th- it, this feels like inconsistent plus, right? Right. It's, it's like, um, you may intimidate the kid to stop crying. You may yell at the kid to stop crying. I get the impression with the ambivalent resistant kid, the caretaker's not yelling at you or trying to intimidate you. They're just not responding in some cases. This is like, really mean stuff, or they might be inconsistent in that they they choose to soothe, but uh-huh. they're doing it without any real emotion. They're like, oh, it's okay. You're going to be fine. It's right. all right, kind of thing. And so that kid's not getting any— Kid's like, um, you're really phoning it in. <laughs> right. And they're not getting support, but not only that, their caregiver— the, the the one person who's supposed to be the source of stability in the entire universe for that kid is a source of fear. Yeah. And so in the strange situation experiment, kids who had disorganized attachment, they might go to the stranger just as, as frequently as they might go to their parent when they came back. Yeah. They might run from their parent. They might freeze and not know which person to go to. Uh-huh. They might be confused because their caregiver is a source of fear, and they but they still have that need. They they just don't know where to get it. It's extremely sad, um, and it is the kind that seems to really uh, lead to serious problems um, early in life and then on t- into adulthood. You ever do that thing? Uh, you and you may ever do that thing where you put Momo in the middle of you and you stand <laughs> far apart and you both start calling her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think either one of us could bear to know that we weren't no, the one, but I, I know pretty well that she would go to Yumi. She wouldn't be happy about it, but she would go to Yumi. Oh, that's sad. Um, I don't know why people would do that, but I've seen that done 
on the internet probably as a joke. Like surely was, no one like would do that and put any like stock in it. Speaking of a joke, uh, you showed me this. There was this meme recently. Mm-hmm. Um, although this comes out in a couple of weeks, so this meme will probably be ancient by then. Right. But there's a trend I think on TikTok where kids. Uh, um, fake reading the news that their parents' favorite celebrity has died, and then they yeah. they, they tape it. I saw that. And like, <laughs> some a lot of, of people are upset about this. Oh man, I can understand being upset about it because yeah. it is like really emotionally abusive. But at the same time, if you watch like a highlight reel of some of the some of the the more pronounced responses, it's it's tough not to crack up. I haven't seen any of them. I just saw that some celebrities were like pretty ticked off about it. Why would the celebrities be ticked off? I don't know. Why are celebrities ever ticked off? I don't know celebrities. <laughs> Who needs them? Remember uh, that point at the very beginning of the uh, pandemic where we, we almost got rid of celebrities? Yeah. <laughs> do you remember? What do you Everybody mean? was so sick of celebrities. There was that oh. whole Gal Gadot screw uh, up well, about she, singing Imagine. Yeah. Madonna in the bath with rose petals talking about how everybody's equal. and Yeah. Everybody was just kind of sick and tired of celebrities right then, and it seemed like we were going to shed our our fascination with them, and it just didn't pan out. Good luck. Yeah, right. All right. Uh, we should probably take our second break, uh, and then we'll talk about, you know, we mentioned testing these theories, and there's mm-hmm. more to it than just the capital S, capital S strange situation. So we'll be back right after this to talk about testing. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiments and Billy made raisins dance. so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me. <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to catch you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby Award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, 
personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Uh, all right. When it comes to testing, uh, these kind of a lot of psychological testing, uh, but especially this, it's pretty tough because in order to get like a robust test, we've talked about it over and over, you need to be able to uh, repeat stuff. You need to be able to have large sample sizes. Uh, and it's really tough in this case because uh, it's hard to get, you know, when you're studying humans like this, and especially this kind of thing where you study infant attachment and then you want to know what they're like later in life. This mm-hmm. is really long drawn out studies over years and years, uh, even decades. And it's hard to get like a large sample size. So right out of the gate, your longevity is hampered, your sample size is hampered. And then the other big knock is it's really impossible to not, uh, think about the variables that might come up that would also influence uh, the outcomes, which in this case, it's like, it's almost an infinite list of variables Mm -hmm. that could affect uh, these kinds of studies. Yeah. Like, are you going to screen the study participants for, um, you know, genetic traits that you are going to try to control for or whether there's lead paint in their home? Um, there's just so much stuff, and it also is based on how complex humans are and how many influences we have. But the the upshot of it is is that attachment theory has been the dominant explanation for um, how little baby personalities are formed uh, and how we kind of view the world from that point on um, for 60 years now. And one of the reasons why is because it holds up. There's a lot of criticisms of it. It's not perfect. It's not complete. But the the gist of it generally holds up. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we mentioned Mary Ainsworth doing work in Uganda and uh, studying like kind of cross-cultural uh, links and ties. And they did find that it is basically cross-cultural. Uh, and as we'll see, even within like different animal species as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, children basically of all cultures do exhibit these uh, attachment theory behaviors, uh, but there were some differences. And I think what the main ones they found out was that their proportions of the attachment styles were different depending on the culture. Although they also said that, uh, I think they found out later that um, socioeconomic differences even outweighed cultural differences, right? Yeah. And I also saw that um, 
typically peers are thought to influence the development of a person's personality way more than any other factors. Oh, interesting. Um, but that's not to say that your attachment doesn't have influences on on the rest of your life, right? Yeah. Um, the thing that they found, though, one of the things that makes the strange situation test difficult is that, yes, the responses among infants are universal and fit into those four buckets, but the way that, that caregivers soothe infants mm-hmm. is is culturally constructed. It's not the same around cultures. Right. So if you're con- conducting this test in the Czech Republic, you have to figure out how the people in the Czech Republic soothe their kids and then quantify the, the results based on those different ways of soothing their kids or not. Yeah. Czech Republic, huh? Sure. Is that first thing that came to mind? It was. Okay. I'd like to go to Prague. <laughs> Uh, I tried to go to Prague in my backpacking adventure years ago, but our mm-hmm. Euro Pass, uh, our Euro Rail Pass, did not cover Prague. <laughs> Weird. At the time, I think it probably does now. But this was, uh, you know, this is in the mid early to mid nineties. Hmm. So sure. anyway, didn't go to Prague. Okay. Should we talk about the monster? Yeah, a guy named Harry Harlow. We've talked about him before. His, Have we? Uh, Sure, I know we have. Okay. We definitely have it. I think in a video, in a video explainer before. Oh, okay. But his uh, Bastards of Science rookie card is worth a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> and he is a total bastard. If there's a hell, this guy's in it. There's just no way, shape, or form around it because his experiments seem to have gone well beyond the realm of science and into just torture. Yeah. So what he did was worked with monkeys. Uh, and one of the main things he did as far as attachment theory go is he got two, this one experiment, he would get two artificial surrogate monkey mommies. Uh, there was one that was covered in cloth and there was one that was just made of like chicken wire and they were both warmed by a light bulb. But again, one is cloth, one is chicken wire. Mm -hmm. And he would, uh, well, he found out that infant monkeys would bond with the cloth mother, no surprise, uh, but if you started having the the wire-only mother provide milk, infants would go to feed with the wire uh, monkey mama and then cuddle with the cloth monkey mama. Uh, and, you you know, you hear that and you think, like, all right, that, that doesn't sound like the worst thing in the world. Uh, but what he started doing, it just – it seems like it got increasingly more disturbing. Uh, he would raise infant monkeys in isolation – uh, sometimes partial, sometimes complete isolation. Uh, this would, you know, basically cause mental illness in these monkeys as they mm-hmm. grew older. Sure. He would, uh, some of these monkeys were so uh, messed up that they couldn't do things like mate later in life. And he wanted to to test like intergenerationality of these effects. So what would the messed up monkeys, uh, little monkey kids be like? But these monkeys were so messed up, the females, they couldn't mate. So he invented a contraption which basically uh, required that the female monkey mate. And I guess that's as deep as we need to go. Yeah. Um, He also had something that he liked to call the pit of despair. Yeah. Which was uh, an inverted pyramid. It produced total isolation. um, And that the monkeys that were inserted into the pit of despair – uh, were introduced to it starting at three weeks old. And so, like, I, I mean, we know now what solitary confinement can do on an adult human after mm-hmm. a very short time. Imagine being raised from three weeks old in solitary confinement your entire life, and it just breaks you mentally, it breaks your spirit, it breaks everything about you. 
And again, yes, this guy showed with the wire monkey experiment that behaviorism was wrong, that they weren't just after food. They needed a, a bond. They needed an affection. And that need is so strong, they would actually bond with a, a cloth-covered wire monkey. Th that's where his experiment should have stopped because beyond that, he's not really contributing much to it yeah. aside from showing that you can really break monkeys by isolating them from a very early age. And even one of his students said uh, later on that it was clear to many people the work was really violating ordinary sensibilities, that anybody with respect for life or people would find this offensive. Yeah. And he was absolutely right about that. Absolutely. Um, one of the kind of cool things now that we have learned because of attachment theory is, again, like, it gave a, a, a real blueprint for how to parent from day one. And, uh, you know, behaviorism was the dominant theory before this came along. And it was really just a sea change in how we saw uh, child rearing. And, you know, thank goodness they came along. Uh, I guess we should talk a little bit about James Robertson, right? Yeah, I think it's great. Uh, because this was in terms, he, you know, it's like, this is all great. And like, uh, as far as like how to parent better and stuff like that. But this was also a time when, you know, hospital visitation, of course, you know, pre-COVID, you know, things are all messed up now because people, it was kind of brought back to this place mm -hmm. where you couldn't, you know, sort of be with your kid in the hospital if they were sick a lot of times because mm -hmm. visitation rules and rights just weren't the same back then. So uh, James Robertson comes around. He worked with uh, Bowlby in the 50s, and he started noticing, like, hey, this is really messed up that you'll send a, a, a very young child to the hospital and basically tell the parents to wait at the door, and it's super stressful. And he wrote a book – or I'm sorry, he made a documentary – a short film called A Two-Year-Old Goes to the Hospital. And it showed these traumas that like when these, and it's already bad enough that these children are being hospitalized. Mm -hmm. But imagine doing that and saying like, sorry, your parents can't like come and see you except for very specific times of day. Uh, right. And, you know, I guess they're still visiting hours in certain circumstances, but it is not like that anymore. And largely due to the fact of the work of James Robertson. And it's not just hospitals. Like, you think about any refugee crisis mm -hmm. uh, or, like, you know, separation of, of uh, families at the border, uh, mm -hmm. which is something that has happened in recent years. And, you know, th this is why people got so upset because, like, we have undeniable proof of, like, the damage that that does and, and like, what a trauma that is for a child and, of course, also for the parents. So it wasn't just hospital stuff. It's like splitting up families, period. Right. I mean, like, and it does permanent damage, too, it seems, or irrevocable, or largely irrevocable. Another way that attachment theory has really affected society is that it's the, it's the dominant rationale that forms the basis for how uh, society approaches families that have problems and that their kids involved. Um, and attachment theory basically says it's better to leave a kid in a troubled home— mm -hmm. And leave the existing attachments intact than to remove the kid if you can support the troubled home and make it into a better home so that everyone involved has less problems and therefore the, the relationship between the caregivers and the kid are better. That, that's attachment theory. And it kind of – it points out, like, just what's at stake. Like, 
attachment theory, if it's not right, then we might be doing something wrong by leaving kids in troubled homes, right? Right. Um, like, like kids' lives are at stake. And then you can extend it even further in that attachment theory is how parents raise kids now. So the effects of attachment theory are going to be felt for generations and generations and generations. So hopefully it is right. It seems like it's right. But if, if we come to find, like, no, actually, this is really harmful, I'll be pretty surprised. But it would be a really big deal because of how pervasive that whole thing is and how many different parts of society it touches. Yeah, for sure. All right. So I guess we should wind it up with just a little bit about uh, adult attachment styles because this mm-hmm. is, you know, we've been talking about children, of course, because they are the ones that you would most often think of as far as being attached and bonding. But uh, this happens into adulthood. And uh, one great example of several is the classic student-mentor relationship. Mm-hmm. And this is sort of the same thing. The whole idea behind a student-mentor isn't so different than uh, infant and parent in that the mentor should allow a student like a really safe haven to explore and to discover the possibilities and to study and provide that like secure home base for them. Right. There's also other studies on whether um, attachment might be related to your political orientation. Uh, maybe yes or no. There's nothing conclusive. Yeah, Religion, out. whether you're religious or not. There's a little more evidence for that. But the one that really is part of pop culture and seems to have some sort of um, validity to it is how attachment in infancy translates to attachment in adult romantic relationships. That's right. And this is the kind of stuff that uh, if you've had trouble in adult romantic relationships, mm-hmm. hopefully you have therapied this out some because nine times out of ten, um, you can probably dive deep enough to find out, oh, this has a lot to do with how I was raised, right. uh, with how I partner up with people now. I hate my mom and dad, it turns out. <laughs> That, that can be uh, the revelation a lot of times, sadly. So they've, they've kind of traced, like, if you're, what your attachment style is to what you're likely to be like in a relationship. And um, one of them, the resistant ambivalent one, the one where you're preoccupied with attachment and you're kind of clingy, that translates oftentimes to a person who is emotionally needy mm-hmm. and insecure, maybe jealous, maybe really threatened by anything that might you know, come between them and, and the, their mate, um, that that is what it translates to in an adult relationship. And yeah. again, people are really, really complex. You might check some of those boxes. You might check some other boxes. This is a, like a general umbrella, but there does seem to be a pretty solid correlation between these. Totally. What about uh, um, avoidant? So avoidant, uh, and this is it all kind of makes sense to me. Uh, they, they're more likely to value freedom later in life. And then uh, also on the downside, seek out a relationship that might be emotionally distant. Mm-hmm. Uh, intimacy may be a problem and they might reject those kind of relationships. Right. Because they've learned that they can't depend on anybody else. They have to depend on themselves so they don't feel comfortable in intimate relationships. And then the uh, creme de la creme is secure, of course. Of course. And that means you are way more likely to have a really great relationship romantically later in life. Mm-hmm. Or maybe a series of them if you're lucky. Or maybe just one, if that's your bag. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
But the point is, boy, I stumbled through that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, the point is, you're more likely to have really good relationships and, and, you know, feel safe and secure and provide comfort to your romantic partner and depend on that comfort from them and be intimate and be open and all the great things that we strive to be. Mm-hmm. All of your haircuts turn out great. You whistle while you work. <laughs> Everybody just loves you. Yeah. It's, that's the secure relationship. I just got a great haircut. What's great, what's great about this, though, is there, it's definitely been shown that you can change your attachment style as an adult. You can change how you interact with your uh, romantic partner as an adult. You're mm. not doomed. You're not trapped. Like, this, this stuff can change, but uh, it takes self-reflection and introspection, usually, like you said, through the help of therapy to, to be successful at that. Yep. Yes, sir. Good stuff. Uh, good stuff. You got anything else? I got nothing else. Chuck's got nothing else. I got nothing else. That means it's time for listener mail. All right. I'm going to call this hot off the presses. Uh, This was sent in like 20 minutes ago. Oh. Flying by the seat of our pants here. Uh, And this is, uh, you know, I'm going to leave this anonymous because I haven't checked back with this person. Okay. But this is in reference to the tarot episode. Guys, what gives? That's how it starts. Okay. Uh, I've loved every episode I've listened to, but the tarot one was insulting, I think. Uh, you joked that it is uh, was all made up, and then in all caps, so is everything. Everything is something made up in someone's head. Uh, Shakespeare's made up. Baseball is made up. Norse mythology is made up. The recipe for jello salad is made up. The only difference between the tarot and any other belief is time. Just because it isn't ancient doesn't mean that it's less valid, uh, less valid way of looking at the world. Interesting. <laughs> I, I, I just, I'm chomping at the bit, Chuck. <laughs> uh, me sitting down with my cards now to reflect on an inner turmoil is no different than someone getting on their knees to pray about a problem. Maybe you should get into that and study uh, Christianity in that same attitude. You would have a revolt. So uh, this person says, I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. Okay. Uh, from Anonymous, huh? Yeah, I haven't checked with this person. They may not want this out there. That's fine. I'm with you. I find it a little flawed as far as their argument goes. Like, <laughs> people don't sit down with a recipe for jello salad and use that to try to predict their future or reflect on what's going on in their life. Same with baseball. Yeah, you could kind of compare it to a religion or something like that or praying. I agree with that. But yeah. I, I, I think the fact that it didn't exist and then became extant to make playing card games a little more interesting is uh-huh. kind of a fatal flaw in it. Okay, hold on. I'm taking notes. Jello, okay. salad, mm-hmm. baseball, baseball, not mm-hmm. same as tarot. Okay. Nice. All right. I'll put that on file. Good. Thank you. And thank you to Anonymous. Sorry we let you down, but them's the breaks when you're talking about tarot. That's right. Um, if you want to get in touch with us like Anonymous did, you can. You can send us an email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. It's been almost 3,000 years, and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. 
Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionized over 20 million bedtimes, with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cozy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 